Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Let us pray. Almighty God, Holy, Immortal One, Everlasting Father, have mercy on us. Lord, may the meditation of my heart, may the words of my mouth be holy and acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning we're going to camp out in our Old Testament lesson. And in Second uh, Kings chapter 4 in particular, and in this lesson, we encounter a very interesting story about an encounter between the prophet Elisha, not my son, and an old couple. And in case you're not too familiar with Elisha, he's a prophet with quite the story. And he follows in the aftermath of another prophet named Elijah. Throughout both of the prophets' lives, that is Elijah and Elisha, they constantly find themselves caught up in the work of God in very difficult situations, ministering to the desperate and the destitute. If anything punctuates their stories, it's compassion, in particular compassion under cruelty. In fact, Elijah and Elisha served during a time of wicked kings and leaders who led the people of God into disobedience, national and social decline, and eventually captivity. Yet in the midst of this larger narrative of decline and captivity of the people of God, we encounter a brief episode in 2 Kings chapter 4 that is filled with a lot of random facts about Elisha, his servant, and a wealthy woman and her husband, who themselves are childless, who themselves are in decline, old age, and who will suddenly experience a miraculous divine intervention, a miraculous provision, and then suffer great loss and eventually witness to the power of God's provision and resurrection. In fact, I would argue that the story of the Shunammite woman that we heard read earlier, is the story of God's people. It is a story of life, death, and resurrection. So grab a Bible and open it up to 2 Kings 4, verse 8, and follow along. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. Just sit back, relax, and listen to the story. Beginning in verse 8. One day Elisha was passing through Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to have a meal. So whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for a meal. And she said to her husband, look, I am sure that this man who regularly passes our way is a holy man of God. Let us make a small roof chamber with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that he can stay there wherever he comes to us. So right off the bat, we learn of how this Shunammite woman recognizes holiness in Elisha that he was a holy man of God and how her encounters with and her hospitality toward this holy man fostered a desire in her to make room in her house 
for God's anointed servant. Now, I know we're just three, three, three verses into this passage, but I want to pause here, and I just want to ask a few set of questions. The first set of questions have to do with holiness. It has to do with faithfulness. In fact, it has to do with exactly what Angel just exhorted us to do, to recognize holiness in our lives and in the lives of others, to acknowledge what God is up to in his people. And so my question is, do you know what holiness looks like? In the New Testament, in 1 Peter 1, the people of God are called to be a people of holiness, a people of faith, to live a life of holiness. You know, the word holy literally means to be set apart, to be reserved, to give God glory in all things. Holiness is a way of life. It is a life of discipline, a life of focus and attention to the things of God. It is to live in obedience to the will and word of God. In Paul's letter to the church in Rome, in chapter 12, Paul says that we are to present our lives as living sacrifices unto God, that we might prove the will of God, what is holy and pleasing to God. And Elisha was set apart and sent by God to live his life in accordance with God's will and God's word. In fact, he was known as one who speaks on God's behalf as a prophet. So the question is, do you know what holiness looks like? Do you recognize holiness in your own life and in the lives of others? Do you desire to be near to holiness, to associate with those who live in obedience and faithfulness to the Lord? The second set of questions have to do with hospitality. Are you making room in your life for others, for your neighbors and strangers, for friends, family, for those who believe and look differently than you, even your enemies? If not, then the question is, why not? And if so, in what ways? Tell of those stories. Spur us on to good works. You know, at the heart of the gospel lies hospitality. Jesus embodies this fully, that while we were sinners, he lays his life down to provide refuge and redemption for us. In fact, Jesus teaches and lives in a way that teaches us that hospitality is, to a considerable extent, the way of holiness. That love for and hospitality to the other is love for and hospitality to and for God. And so when the Shunammite woman made room for the man of God in her home, she was doing nothing less than making room in her life for God. The room was her gift. Her gift to God and to the man she recognized as holy, who spoke on behalf of God. And this room would provide Elisha and his servant connectedness to a home and to a family, a place of belonging on the way. 
And this required much, not only of her, but also of her husband. It required imagination and actual work. I'd even contend that it required a total altering of her world, the way she understood and lived in the world. This provision of a room was a total rearrangement of this woman and her husband's life for and on behalf of others. You know, I'm constantly amazed by our church's hospitality. I could list example after example that I have witnessed over the past six years that I've been in the life of this church. And I say this not to pat ourselves on the back, but to spur us on toward greater acts of hospitality. This is just one example. You know, year after year, there are a good number of families as well as single adults from our church who open their homes to accommodate anywhere from 8 to 12 random college students from around the nation that we now know as the Greensboro Fellows. Yet, it would be an understatement to simply say those families and adults only provided a room and basic accommodations. No, I have witnessed with my own eyes as well as have spoken to host home and families as well as the fellows year after year after year. And I can say that there is indeed a total rearrangement of life that occurs to pull off hosting a stranger for nine months, not to mention strangers living with strange families from this church for nine months. But here's the beauty of hospitality. It is in and through genuine welcome that strangers become friends, even family. Often, if not always, within a week to a month or so, these host families and the host, those who receive the fellows, they grow into deeper relationship. And get this, all that was rearranged is now just shared life. This is kind of what happens with Elisha and the Shunammite woman and her husband that he and his servant lives with. A shared life, whereby he grows comfortable enough to inquire deeper into their personal lives. In fact, the next scene of our story, the woman's provision of a room and hospitality causes Elisha to inquire into the depths of this woman's life. Follow along with me as we continue in verse 11. One day when he came there, he went up to the chamber and lay down there. And he said to his servant, call the Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said, to him, he said to his servant, say to her, since you have taken all this trouble for us, what may be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I live among my people. And so he said, what then may be done to her, to his servant? And his servant answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. So he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood at the door. And he said, at this season in due time, you shall embrace a son. And she replied, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not deceive your servant. The woman conceived and bore a son at that season in due time as Elisha had declared to her. Now, what we discover here is that Elisha wanted to acknowledge this woman for the love with which she had shown him. In other words, she, he wanted to acknowledge her faith. 
and to bless her for it. But I'm gonna be honest with you. The first time I read this, these were my thoughts. What is wrong with Elisha? Why can't he just receive a gift without paying it back? And why is he dropping political figures in conversations? Why is he doing this? Is he trying to demonstrate his self-importance or that being a prophet, he can make things happen? Because I'm going to be honest with you, on the surface, it does seem this way, especially when we take into account the woman's response. Here's the paraphrase. I'm quite content right where I am, living among my people. Thank you, but no thank you, Elisha. Oh, please don't interrupt my work again. And if you do, please make sure to look at me in the face when you address me. You got it? Okay, I'm just messing around. But the question is, what is actually going on here? Well, since Elisha is a prophet and he represents holiness as well as speaks on God's behalf, I genuinely believe that his acknowledgement of this woman's provision, hospitality, and love is representative of God finding favor with her. Elisha desires what God desires, which is to see the ways in which God will manifest to her God's provision. God's hospitality, and God's love. This isn't a story about two men presumptively making reproductive plans for a woman they didn't know much about. It's a story of God working in and through his anointed one to provide miraculous provision of an extraordinary gift from an extraordinary imagination far greater than that of the man of God. Like the Virgin Mary, God found favor with this woman who had been faithful. She recognized holiness and rearranged her entire life to live in proximity to the work and will of God. Like Sarah, Abraham's wife, God blesses her in old age with an unexpected son. And although she did not make the request, God blesses her with a son who is a sign of life from barrenness, a sign that God, the God of Abraham, still ruled in and for his people, Israel. Now, let me make this clear. God was not, is not obligated to bless this woman. This is not a checklist or a criterion for how to get blessing from God. But God did bless this woman. The point being is this, You nor I, we cannot make God move in our lives, but we can make room for God to move in our lives. In fact, the phrase to make room is the same verb as hospitality. And this is what the Shunammite woman does. She makes room in her life for God's servant and thereby is making room in her life for God to move. This is how faith works. You cannot manipulate the presence and power of God. You cannot make God move in your life, but you can make room for God to move in your life. And again, this is what the Shunammite woman did. And in her case, God moved. Now, can you imagine all the hopes and all the fears running through this woman's heart and mind at this point in her life. I'm not a mother, 
but I am married to a wonderful mother. And I remember conversations with Leah about all of our children when we discovered that she was with child, especially with Elisha, our firstborn. We were fully aware that he was a gift to us, but there was also a frequent feeling that this gift deserved more love and more care and more attention than Lee and I could possibly give to him. Now, maybe it's too much of a presumption on my part, but this is what comes to my mind. When I think about this woman and her husband and what they were imagining about their future with their son, this woman did receive her son as gift. And in receiving her son as gift, she is receiving what the Lord has for her life. I imagine that every day with her son was a gift, that her child taught her things she had never known. She had never known how much she could love and love so much. She had never known how differently the world looks through the eyes of a child. She had never known such fear, such delight, such hope. And in the same way, her making room for others in her home altered her life. This woman's reception of God's provision of a son made all the difference in her world. She found herself once again rearranging her life as she had done for the man of God, but now making room, accommodating the fragile body who in the course of time would come to dwell in her home, in her womb. But there would come a day where she had never known such pain and tragic loss. Let's continue reading in verse 18. When the child was older, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he complained to his father, my head hurts. Dad, my head hurts. And so his dad sent him away to his mother with his servant, saying, carry him to his mother. And he carried him and brought him to his mother. And the child sat on her lap until noon and died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, closed the door on him and left. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. He said, why go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. It's not a holy day. And she said, it will be all right. Here she says to her husband, peace, shalom. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not hold back from me unless I tell you. So she sets out and she came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. There is only one way to describe what has just happened in this story. Tragic loss through an unexpected death of a child. But what we also discover is that in the midst of such tragic loss is a faithful woman with a persistent faith for all things good and holy. When I say persistent faith, what I mean here is that she did more than just offer some passive hospitality to some random man whereby she was blessed. Here we see a woman of faith who possesses a persistent, making haste type of faith, actively seeking after God and demanding a blessing as we will see. 
This woman was confident of God's provision because she had experienced it firsthand. She is a woman who defies social convention in which she will push men aside and avoid small talk and hot pursuit for God and for God to intervene. She is a woman who knows the character of God and expects nothing less than God to be God, expecting God to once again speak life into death and create out of nothing something, the resurrection of her son. She is a woman whose story not only foreshadows the message of the gospel, but also, I believe, a woman who understood God's redemptive plan, not only for her life, but also for the life of the world. In other words, what we discover here is a woman of God who possesses a confident hope in the resurrection, a hope against hope expressed in both her words and deeds. In words, she continually says, all is well. Maybe your Bible translated, it will be all right. If you look in verses 23 and 26, these words here, all is well, or it will be all right. This, this, is, this comes from the word shalom, which means peace. This is important because this woman is speaking peace into the chaos of her life. When formality most likely required that she give an account to the servant or to Elisha or to her husband. And although she does not know it yet. Peace will be the outcome of her faithful striving to place her hope in God. And indeed, what does she do? She makes haste for the hope that is to come. So in the midst of death, confusion, anger, and chaos of her life, this woman, like Angel in her testimony, demonstrates to us a persistent faith. A fight of faith, a struggle to remain faithful, to remain confident in the hope that we have, and to be courageous in spirit, under the guidance of God's spirit. By making room for the other, this woman made room for God, who is holy other, a God who blesses persistent faith, a God who gives his people a confident hope and a God who gives his people a courageous spirit that will supply his people the type of strength, character, and endurance, the type of faith to remain faithful in the messiness of our lives. In fact, this woman of God shows us that faith is lived in the messiness of life. And get this, insofar as you and I are willing to journey with this woman, to walk with her moment by moment throughout the story without skipping to the end, we will then discover and understand what faith actually looks like. How to do faith. Faith for this woman is making room and making haste after God for the hope that is to come. Let's continue in verse 25. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to his servant, look, there is the Shunammite woman. Run at once to meet her and say to her, are you okay? Is your husband okay? Is your child okay? And she answers, it is all right. Peace, shalom. And when she comes to the man of God at the mountain, she caught hold of his feet. And the servant approached to push her away. But Elisha says to her, let her alone for she is in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden this from me. 
Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, did, did I not say to you, do not mislead me? So Elisha says to his servant, gird up your loins, take my staff, go heal the boy essentially. So he goes away. And then the mother says to Elisha, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so Elisha, he rises up and makes haste to the house where the child lives or is laying. So what this woman models to us, again, is this persistent faith, this hope against hope in the midst of loss, in the midst of pain and tragedy. This is gospel faith. This is world-transforming faith. What we see here is the mixture of contentment. It is well with holy discontentment, lament, but not all is well with my world. And as the story unfolds, it does so between this woman's repeated utterances, all is well, and her persistence to not take no from anyone whether that be the holy man of God, his servant, or even God himself. And so when she arrives where Elisha is at, she, like Jacob, clenching tight to the angel of the Lord, takes hold of him and refuses to let go. Like the woman who took hold of Jesus' garment, this woman, the Shunammite woman, takes hold of the man of God who represents holiness and speaks on God's behalf. And she says, as Yahweh, as God lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And with these words, Elisha recalls his vocation and he recognizes the divine opportunity presented to him. And like the Shunammite woman, Elisha follows in her example and makes haste in faith to the house where the child lay. In verse 32, when Elisha comes to the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in, closed the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got up on the bed and lay upon the child, putting his mouth upon his mouth, his eyes upon his eyes and his hand upon his hands. And while he lay bent over him, the flesh of the child became warm. So he got down, walked once to and fro in the room then got up again and bent over him, and the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Elisha summoned his servant and said, Call this Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when she came in, he said, Take your son. She came and she fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she took her son and left. In this last scene of the story, we discover something very, very very important about Elisha's faith. We discover that Elisha's faith is required as much as we have seen modeled from the woman's persistent faith. And this is exactly what unfolds. A persistent faith in God expressed in persistent prayer and pleading on the child's behalf. But please do not miss this point. Even though a persistent faith in God is present and a persistent prayer to God exists, ultimately what is required here is God to intervene. Without God, there is no resurrection. Without God, 
there is no resurrection. And this is where the story ends. God's deliverance from death, resurrection, and ascension. She takes her child and she leaves. A few centuries later, there would be another woman without child. Like this Shunammite woman, it would be prophesied that she would have a son. And this son would grow up and likewise see death. But he would be raised to life. So one hears the echoes of the story of Mary and Joseph, or Jesus. Like Elisha, Jesus' own life would echo the former prophet as well. He would respond to the cries of those in need with compassion. He would feed the hungry. He would raise the dead. But greater still, he would offer his own life in exchange for theirs and offer his life eternal to those who would choose to follow him. At the end of the day, this is the way of God, is it not? And in this way, the story of the Shunammite woman and Elisha embodies the very character of God. If there's anything that I would want to leave with you today, it's this, that God finds favor among the faithful. It's as simple as that. God finds favor among the faithful. Second, God hears the cries of those in need, and he responds with compassion and provision and blessing. And three, God offered his life for you and I, for the life of the world. Sisters and brothers, like the Shunammite woman, I implore you by the mercies of God to open up your lives, to make room for God to move in and through you. I pray that we would be confident in the hope that we have been called into in Jesus Christ, who says, I am the resurrection and who has promised to make all things new. My prayer for us is that when we are in doubt in the midst of decline and chaos, maybe even despair, that we might trust in God. That we would be persistent in the faith and that we would make haste after God to rescue us in our time of need and trouble. Let us be faithful in all things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.